Welcome to Professor Latinx Podcast. And today here in the studio and uh, at The Ohio State University, we have two guests from Europe, Benoit Crucifi and Sylvain Lesage. Benoit is, uh, has, is now a postdoc at the University of Ghent, but he got his PhD, D, PhD degrees at the University of Liege and Louvain. Um, he's a comic scholar of contemporary graphic novels, specifically interested in issues of comics and memory. Sylvain Lesage is assistant professor at the University of Lille, and he teaches the history of visual culture, uh, the history of the book, and, of course, graphic novels, including, of course, um, the French bande dessinée. Welcome. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, you know, before we even get into, like, you know, your work and everything, um, there's this sense of maybe French and Belgian comics as, like, Asterix and Tintin. But my goodness, right? That's like mm -hmm. decades ago. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure kids still read it, read those, right? But tell us, um, Benoit, like bring us uh, first, Benoit, if you can maybe um, jump in here and then we'll have Sylvain. Um, what's going on in Europe with comics? Yeah, um, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. I think there's... Um, there's also more and more that's getting out of French and Belgian, let's say, the small territory, so that it's circulating much more than it used to. Uh, there's still a bit more translation in the U.S. of contemporary indie creators. Uh, I think the webcomics also helps uh, lots of popular uh, digital comics artists who directly write in English uh, instead of writing in French, which kind of helps with a more kind of global uh, circulation, but it I feel like it remains in the U.S. Um, very much limited to Asterix and Tintin in terms of the view of what uh, French comics are, are about. Um, I think it remains hard uh, for U.S. audiences to um, to to catch how uh, comics are done uh, in Europe. Um, although there's there's definitely kind of uh, progress, and is that because the media just doesn't kind of get the news out beyond Europe mm. as is easily? You know, uh, is that why? Why are, maybe we are speculating mm. here? But why is it that the U.S. audiences aren't getting a good sense of you know the contemporary works mm. that are happening? I don't know, Sylvain. Do you want to? jump in here? Oh, I wouldn't know on that question, but uh, I would imagine that the traditions are quite different. Uh, just to get back to what Benoit was saying, I, I found it interesting that you were starting with Asterix and Tintin, because uh, I would say probably the mainstream comics industry in Europe, uh, or at least in France and uh, Belgium, is strongly driven by nostalgia. And a lot, um, a massive part of the readership is aging, and you see massive sales. Like, for instance, in the global publishing industry, I'm not even talking about comics publishing, but the global book publishing trade, uh, you would differentiate between the years when uh, an Asterix album is released and the years without an Asterix album because it changes completely 
the, the shape, the size of the book market, it's absolutely huge. Even though, you know, they are cheap books, and, but they're sold absolutely everywhere. And yeah, sure, kids still read those, but I'm, I'm not that sure that's why these things still sell. I think a lot of these albums are bought because, you know, parents think that uh, their kids might like it, but I'm not sure this works. You know, mm. there's always a discrepancy between uh, the buyer's intention and the reader's pleasure. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, nostalgia is still a big thing. And you see the main successes in the mainstream comics trade are in fact titles or um, I'm not sure what the word in English would be, but, you know, um, old series continued by new artists. And I think the top four or five uh, albums would be these very old series continued forever. And I think this is a massive problem that doesn't really help sustaining new creative approaches. Really interesting. So, you know, here we talk about like the big two, DC and Marvel, um, and now, of course, Scholastic um, as kind of owning um, and controlling, right, the market for comics, graphic novels. Um, you know, so who would that be in, in Europe? Um, you, you, know, you mentioned this kind of kind of controlling in a way of like what's allowed in and what's not allowed in mm. um are, are there mm. some big publishers benoit that are doing that yeah i think sylvain knows the the publishing business much better um, but i would say um in the historically uh dupuis uh, mm. uh casterman would be the the big belgian publishers uh, kind of displaced then by by French publishers, but over the I think since the 80s and since the kind of uh, globalization of publishing businesses, it's all become big consortiums um, of uh, which often are not also directly related to uh, book selling only. Um, mm. I think, um, and yeah. that maybe that gets to your point about web comics being a kind of. Of a, maybe a space of vitality for creators. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I think um, digital comics have moved uh, towards other uh, territories, other ways of making comics in in a way that uh, traditional publishers are constantly trying to catch up but can't quite know how to do it. So they constantly try to release uh, new approaches to web comics that they think they see a market that they want to tap into, but they don't. They quite fail to grasp how to, to touch new audiences. So that's kind of a discrepancy, I think, between the bu- the comics publishing businesses and the vitality of the audience or smaller um, digital comics made for maybe smaller audiences, but that do work across, uh, across formats, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think, really two, it's two different worlds, nearly, the, the print publishing. Uh, sometimes there's, of course, yeah, overlaps and exchanges, but it it's remains um, a difficult relationship. Sylvain, you study the kind of material culture of b- books, of graphic novels. Um, yeah, what are, what's, your, what's your sense of this? Mm. 
What do you mean? Can you be a bit more specific? The sense of, uh, you know, where, you know, we have these big kind of conglomerates and um, in a way controlling what general readers are having access to. And yet there are these pockets of creativity and independence that are happening as well, um, especially in the digital comics Mm. spaces. Um, I'm also thinking of Angiem, the big festival, you know, um, does it kind of work the same way that we have here with comics comics expos and comic cons where you have you know creators who are finally you know finding audiences outside of you know the internet actually interacting you know maybe there are these other material spaces that are happening in europe um that you know we just don't know about mm. um so i i see two two different sides to to your question um the first aspect would be the publishing business and my take as a historian so i'm not i'm not a specialist in contemporary comics at all um what i would say is because it's been a long process is the fact that the the state of the market the way i see it is the result of decades or overproduction uh that the publishers specifically designed to throttle uh, competitors. Like they've tried to suffocate the market by overflowing with, you know, new albums and new releases. And in the end, the only ones who pay a very dear price are the artists because what's happening now and it's a very important topic now in uh, in France and Belgium is the fact that artists find it increasingly uh, difficult to sustain a living and to like I'm not even talking about having a decent pay I'm talking about survival here uh, but maybe we'll get back to that uh, the other aspect would be Comic-Cons and festivals and etc. I think the systems are very different. I don't know the, the American system well at all. But the way I see it, <clears throat> the I would... Maybe it's stereotypical, you, you tell me. But the way I see it, uh, Comic-Con and other conventions are more about the a comics industry and what's interesting is the fact that it's so diverse and where you would have lots of mainstream but also lots of indie uh, creation whereas in Europe and in Angoulême specifically I would say it would be more what you call indie um, comics and there's always been a lot of tensions between mainstream publishers, mainstream artists, and um, indie creators. But in the end, this is France we're talking about, where we have a very specific relationship to art, to artists, to literature, um, and to awards and the state. And, you know, it's a state-sponsored festival, uh, like, for instance, this year, so it was a month ago, uh, President Macron was visiting the festival. I don't think this is the kind of thing that could happen in the States, right? So um, it 
creates and because there's this very long tradition of state-sponsored art going back all the way to Louis XIV, um, I think there is this idea that you know art is a specific um, is a specific thing, and you shouldn't meddle art with business. There's always this idea. It's very French. Uh, I would say probably in Belgium it's slightly different. Um, but there is a very strong um, resentment or fear that business would tarnish the art. Like it, it would uh, demean the art. And so it makes it very ambiguous because obviously you have to sell books. Sorry, you have to sell books. You have to... Um, you know, get to the readers and make money out of it. But, yeah, it's uh, it's also a very Latin and Catholic idea that, you know, money is dirty. Um, so, yeah, all in all, it makes a very different uh, festival, I think. Benoit, tell us about what happens in Belgium on this level. Yeah, yeah I th it's very interesting. Um, I think Belgium also has this kind of, um, since it's quite modeled after uh, France, and it always kind of tries to mimic what's happening in France, or it has to be commercially successful, it has to to succeed on the French uh, market. So it's very much uh, shaped by the influence of France. Uh, but then it also doesn't have, we don't have that uh, relationship to, let's say, institutional culture. Um, so we don't have, we do have state-sponsored events. Um, we do have um, uh, local cities trying to set up comics festivals, but it's in a very different, uh, less institutional Uh, less institutionalized relationship um, where there's a more uh, there's maybe more um, connections also between uh, public culture and uh, or official organizing instances and businesses or commercial imperatives there's that's maybe also a bit of a tradition like a political tradition to have lots of overlaps between um, administrative positions and business positions or commercial positions uh, where the line is not so clear. Uh, but the, the festivals uh, in Belgium have been, uh, in the later years, uh, quite a big problem. We don't have... Um, it's always actually the, the, the bigger festivals are really organized as this um, nostalgia-driven culture. Let's celebrate popular comics, but these are popular com comics that were popular in the 50s and 60s. It's Tintin, Spirou, all those big comics characters, uh, but that do fail to talk to young audiences. Um, and that also kind of leaves aside all the um, more arty, more uh, yeah, alternative comics culture that has been thriving in Belgium over the last uh, decades with like new art schools. And so it's It's really quite a rift that's always um, difficult to uh, to combine, and I don't know. Maybe the, the sheer uh, impulse to uh, to try and combine both worlds is something that's uh, more and more kind of falling apart, or kind of falling, um, mm. going into the different directions. I feel. Let me um, ask you both of you. Um, we teach comics and. You know, I teach them in a, sp a specific way here at, um, in the U.S. at the Ohio State University, um, and I do it because 
for you know number of reasons you know i know that i have peers uh, colleagues that are teaching comics and so we're going to share students and i can kind of assume certain things mm-hmm. a certain interest but also certain knowledge of comics um and typically i focus on latinx comics and issues of gender and race and sexuality etc but what are um benoit maybe you can tell us a little bit what is what has that experience been for you, um, either teaching comics or um, being in a classroom where you're learning about comics in Europe? Mm. I haven't. So I've I've mm, I've haven't had a course specifically on comics when I was um, when I was uh, well taking university classes. But I did have um, sessions where comics would be integrated as part of literature. I studied American English Germanic languages. Um, so that the just the sense that we could work on comics at university level was helpful, uh, and then during my PhD degree, I had I taught a couple of sessions on comics as part of my supervisor's um, classes. And one thing that's interesting, I think, in in Belgium is that we don't have actually um, lots of courses on the history of comics. I think there's one uh, in Liège, actually, that's part of the art history program. Um, that's a, actually a history of comics. Um, but besides that, we do have lots of tracks, like course tracks in art schools where people would then learn how to make comics, but not, let's say, comic studies. Um, so that's that's kind of a difference between universities and our art schools and teaching what i find interesting in belgium is that you you can rely um on a kind of basic knowledge from the students so you will know that students have some kind of familiarity with tintin or with Spiho or will have in belgium comics culture is still very strong um even people who don't know um, Tintin or who don't, well, who haven't read it as kids will have um, a sense of what comics are. So that's really a good base to kind of rely on. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that makes them an engaging audience uh, very often. Sylvain, what's your experience? Well, it's interesting because it's quite different, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first thing is, so as as a student, I've never had a course on comics. You know, I was studying history and historians are serious people who don't (laughs) engage in comics. I'm a historian, so I'm (laughs) allowed to say these things. Um, And these things are starting to change, but there's still a strong reluctance to accept comics as something that could interest um, a historian. It's um, It's been accepted for a long time in literature and a few other, um, um, a few other fields, but in history, it's been quite difficult. And I've learned quite, you know, it was sort of an accident that when I realized that I could actually study comics um, and do my PhD about it. Um, but... You know, that was a long time ago. Now I'm a teacher uh, at university, and um, and the way I see it is... So th- the common ground with Belgium would be that there is basically no structured courses on comics at university. Um, a couple of them are starting to appear, but it is really the start of something. And we'll see if it is, you know, the start of something new or just... Uh, just an accident and in a few years time it will be gone and because that's usually what happens you you see individual 
um, initiatives taking over and then disappearing after a few years because, you know, funds are have disappeared or something like that. Um, so you would have um, you would have courses on comics in art schools, same as Belgium. The main difference, which I find really fascinating, is the fact that um, Benoit was mentioning uh, the fact that the young generation has a knowledge of comics and of um, you know old comics, and this knowledge doesn't exist to to my experience. It doesn't exist among the French students. They have absolutely no idea what Tintin is or what Asterix really? is. Like, they, well, you know, they remember vaguely yeah. having read a couple of albums in their childhood, but they don't read anything. And, you sh well, you know, I'm speaking in very broad general terms, and obviously you would have students who would be com complete comics nerds, but the the general typical students would not read any comics and when you mention comics they would say maybe after a while and after a lot of explaining oh yeah manga a bit but no comics and you're like yeah but you know what's the difference it is comics but you know uh, it's a it's a difficult matter, and I think it says a lot about a uh, generational gap in the readership and the fact that the traditional bande dessinée is something for older people or you know mm -hmm. freaks like us. <laughs> I yeah. might be over enthusiastic about Belgian <laughs> young readers. I might have mm -hmm. overplayed it a bit, but mm -hmm. do you see? Do you so? In other words. Um, you're on the bus or something, and mm. are you know kids reading uh, bande dessinée? They would read mm. manga. Manga, manga. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, because yeah, for someone like me, I've kind of got you know this sort of I'm nostalgic and mm. have this <laughs> idea that somehow, you know, kids today even are on the bus reading, you know, you yeah. know Spirou or something. But yeah, Sp Spirou actually the magazine that's surprising remains uh, popular. So it's one of the the old historical magazine that is continuously published, um, also available on newsstands, that I think has succeeded to a certain extent in mm. uh, renewing its audience. Also maybe because their parents probably kind of buy the uh, mm. abonnement or subscription, mm. subscribe to the magazines. Mm -hmm. So I do I do see sometimes kids reading Spirou on the bus. Mm -hmm. that, that does happen. But yeah, but basically in newsstand, all you can find is Spirou. Uh, Spirou, and yeah. um, a lot of what we call in French comics, which is American comics and superhero stuff. Mm -hmm. And so manga, you would get it from bookstores, but yeah, that's, that's mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So the kids would read these. Mm -hmm. and, and also, yeah, sorry, I also forgot uh, Mickey, uh, like Walt Disney pu mm -hmm. publication. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Lebdo? How's that read? Lebdo? Hmm. The political cartoon. Ah, Charlie yeah. Hebdo, you mean? Yeah. Ah. Ah. Oh, that's a sensitive topic. Yeah. <laughs> oh. No, uh, well, I mean, its readership has uh, gone back to yeah. what it was before the attacks. So, you know, a few thousands of people are actually mm. reading it. But it's, um, it's really, really narrow. And I think it would be a very... Uh, I don't know, but mm -hmm. if I had to guess, I would say it's probably a very old 
mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. So you guys are both here for this uh, symposium, uh, Drawing Gender, Women, and French Language Comics. Um, Sylvain, what are you presenting on? Tell us. Yeah. Ah, <clears throat> I'm presenting on uh, colorists, because uh, traditionally colorists used to be women. It is currently changing. It's changed for the past couple of decades, I would say. Uh, it's still an ongoing uh, work, um, but I'm talking with a lot of uh, chorists at the moment. And yeah, so in the 50s, 60s, when the profession started to appear as something like a, a specific task because of the album, you know, when the album became, sorry, when the album became a publishing standard, they had to, publishers had to have um, better colors. So um, a lot of um, artists hired, tried to hire uh, colorists, but they didn't have the funds to do it. So who did they um, get in touch with? Well, their wives. And so for a lot of col- uh, a lot of comics artists in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, um, coloring was an unpaid job done in the family. And, you know, some of them would have a contract and a specific pay, but it would go back to uh, a joint account. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting. And when you look at more... So Hergé would be the, the most important uh, creative studio in France and Belgium, obviously. Uh, and when you look at the, all the assistants employed by Hergé over the three or four decades that he had a studio, uh, all the women were chorists and all the chorists were women. So I think it tells a lot, and uh, what I find interesting here is the fact that um, authorship is still a very controversial matter uh, among colorists. So uh, a lot of them are claiming a part of authorship and want to be credited as uh, artists, which, uh, you know, sounds insane in the States because chorists have always been credited or at least have been credited for decades. And in, in France, it's still not common practice. But the thing is, being credited as artists also means that there will be... It's a bit technical, but basically they will be paid less. And they will be paid uh, on royalties, but it's advanced payments advanced payment on sales and it's absolutely not a good deal at all benoit what are you uh how are you kind of participating in this you know intervention drawing gender um it's a very small uh focused uh paper on nicole clavlou um it's funny because when i proposed uh well i made a suggestion uh to uh, margaret flynn um, it was Nicole Clavelou uh, was still not so well. Uh, 
she was a very well-known cartoonist, uh, but over the past six months, she's raised to prominence, let's say, again, or mm. she's been remembered a lot because of the festival uh, where she got she she got a big exhibition at the Angoulême Festival in January. Her work is already reprinted in two volumes, so that was very timely, and that um, helped me <laughs> recovering lots of information very handily in preparation for the paper. Uh, but she mostly worked in the 70s and 80s, uh, doing both very uh, transgressive adult work for underground uh, for an underground all women periodical called Anana, uh, but simultaneously she was also drawing uh, the same kind of transgressive comics, maybe less uh, overtly sexual and so on, uh, in a um, comics magazine for kids. Um, and so my paper will kind of be about this overlap between. Well, comics for kids, comics for adults, um, and how she well left comics, and how we're trying to memorialize now, or how do we remember her work now? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that will be it. Um, you know, one thing I, I you mentioned in another interview, you talk about how you know in many ways comics is a distillation of you know every everyday reality, um, and then a reconstruction, and in that sense relies on kind of types, right? Mm. But within that, there can also be subterfuge or, you know, something interesting that happens. Um, and, uh, you know, you were talking about it in the context of gender, gender roles and mm. character. Did you want to, um, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, um, that was for the, the lantern um uh, yeah, what what I meant is that there's been, and uh, that's actually drawing from a poem that um, Jared Garner uh, made in in terms of the caricatures in the late 19th century and early uh, 20s. That the difference between single panel cartoon, where you have um, very often a racist stereotype or racist cartoon, uh, but then when it gets within a sequential comics or within a, a serialized comic, uh, even when you use a kind of, uh, even when you have to rely on a kind of racist or gendered stereotype, um, you also have the potential to kind of subvert or to kind of undo it or to kind of nuance it a little bit. So it was kind of building on that idea and finding that in contemporary production, we find lots of um, characters who are either uh, not at all gendered or ways of um, trying to um, uh, subvert uh, the kind of binary gender uh, representation um, or trying to make that less of uh, less of a strong focus. I was thinking of um, there's a recent comic by Olivier Schauen where he um, where he draws lots of humans, um, but in a way that is completely irrelevant. And I actually find that in the work of Nicole Clavelou, very in the 70s or so, she has these two um, women detectives. Um, uh, and you know they are women because they're always relate, referred to uh, as women, uh, but they're not at all the kind of uh, the the traditional, uh, what would have been the traditional representations of women in comics at the time, which would have been the pinup or the the um, yeah the old grumpy lady. Uh, I think Bretéche was also doing this kind of drawing ugly women at the time was kind of something that was both um, necessary, that seems to us kind of very common or evident, but at the time was really uh, kind of a statement of um, 
yes, you have several ways of drawing women. You don't have to fall into these two categories of the the old grumpy mother or the the pinup uh, mm. girl, uh, and just drawing. Yeah, that that was I think that was an important uh, part that that has now diversified a bit more uh, in terms of. Uh, how can we draw people, which is, yeah. As I wrap this up uh, with our two guests, Sylvain, is there a particular comic artist that you find is doing something really interesting or different, or maybe just that you love reading right now that comes to mind? Yeah. Is it a big problem if uh, she's American? Not at all. <laughs> or, well, she's not. I'm not sure if she has American papers, but she lives in America. Um, it's uh, probably, it's a bit old. Well, you know, it's always relative, but it's not very recent. But it was one of the main shocks, I would say, that I had reading uh, comics in a long time. And it was, um, oh, I forgot the American name. Uh, it's Heimat by Nora Krug. Um, uh, I think. I wonder if it's not Heimat in English. Um, I'm not sure because I or think my I country. S- oh. No, it must be Heimat. Anyway, it's uh, this brilliant, uh, fascinating recollection of um, her um, uh, parents and grandparents' uh, history in Germany and how. So she's German. She she was born in Germany. She married uh, an American. She lives in New York. Her husband is Jewish. And she explains how living abroad, she started feeling more German that she she felt back home because, yeah, it was people's reactions to her accent and, you know, the kind of things that people would say when they would hear um, a German accent and all the stereotypes. And then she started digging into her history and trying to understand what her grandparents had done during the war. And what, what I found fascinating is that, to me, it's sort of um, uh, a very interesting uh, response uh, or echo of Archbishop Man's Mouse, uh, but not from the perspective of uh, the victim or the child of victims, but from the perspective of the perpetrators, which is possibly even more difficult. And she's doing it absolutely brilliantly. She doesn't... It's uh, completely honest and raw. And, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll have to go out and get that one. Um, thank you both uh, for you. being here for Professor Latinx podcast. Thank you, Benoit, Sylvain. Thank you so much for thank having you, us. Right. It was great.